Can it be possible that this planet has actually spawned such things? That human eyes have truly seen, as objective flesh, what man has hitherto known only in febrile fantasy and tenuous legend. And yet, I saw them in a limitless stream, flopping, hopping, croaking, bleating, surging inhumanly through the spectral moonlight in a grotesque, malignant sarabrand of fantastic nightmare. And some of them had tall tiaras of that nameless whitish gold metal, and some were strangely robed, and one who led the way was clad in a ghoulishly humped black coat and striped trousers, and had a man's felt hat perched on the shapeless thing that answered for a head. I think their predominant colour was a greyish green, though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their backs were scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested the anthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish, with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed. At the sides of their necks were palpitating gills, and their long paws were webbed. They hopped irregularly, sometimes on two legs and sometimes on four. I was somehow glad that they had no more than four limbs. Their croaking, baying voices, clearly used for articulate speech, held all the dark shades of expression which their staring faces lacked. But, for all their monstrousness, they were not unfamiliar to me, and knew too well what they must be. For was not the memory of that evil tiara at Newburyport still fresh? They were the blasphemous fish frogs of the nameless design, living and horrible. And as I saw them, I knew also of what that humped tiara priest in the black church basement had so fearsomely reminded me. Their number was past guessing. It seemed to me that there were limitless swarms of them, and certainly my momentary glimpse could have only shown the least fraction. In another instant, everything was blotted out by a merciful fit of fainting, the first I had ever had. Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a sometimes fortnightly, sometimes monthly podcast for fans of Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. My fish frog friend. How are you doing? (laughs) Uh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's appropriately grey and wet today to be talking about Innsmouth. It has rained non-stop since this time yesterday here. Fantastic heavy rain all through the night when I was lying awake listening to the rain. It just seems to be stopping now so that the fish frogs can come out. Is there an accursed fishy odour? Yeah, exactly. Fortunately not. Every so often in London you hear seagulls and I always find it really jarring to suddenly hear seagulls. And obviously the Thames goes into the sea, but it's it sort of takes me by surprise. You think, what's going on? Yeah, I've been working on a, on a kind of a, a site to do with my job and it's mm. uh, near Portobello. So when I when I walked to, to get some lunch, uh, or just went for a walk at lunchtime, you kind of turn a corner and you get like a blast of sea air. You forget, mm. you know, we're, we are yeah. right on the coast here. Yeah, we're on an island, yeah. So what are we talking about today? Well, I mean, I've dropped a couple of clues there. We're doing one of our regular lore episodes. Mm. Yeah. So we're looking at... It's been a bit simpler this time. We did speak to... MJ at the end of the last cycle about what was on the mood board for this cycle mm. and the main story suggestion is obviously the shadows of Innsmouth so that's what we're going to be talking about yeah so we're going to dive in and think about that I called it the shadows of Innsmouth it's the mm. shadow over Innsmouth only one yeah just the singular and funnily enough like looking 
just on Wikipedia at the first issue of it, it just says Shadow Over Innsmouth as the title. Interesting. I don't know if that's the first issue or an issue of it. So this was published in December 1931. So it falls towards the end of Lovecraft's writing, I think. Yes. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, he dies in 37. And it's one of his longer pieces of writing and probably, I'd say, one of his better known pieces of writing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, certainly. I think this and and The Call of Cthulhu and maybe you'd say something like The Colour Out of Space are are the, Mm. the ones... If you were on Pointless, they'd be the ones at the top of the list. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, I, I read the original manuscript, which is available yeah. as it's in a museum in, I guess, in North America somewhere. Yeah, I think it's at Brown University, actually. I think it's at University. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's at University, Brown. Yes. They have the original manuscript and it's scanned, so you can you can read that. And that, that's how I read it. So I read the original typewritten version from Lovecraft with all of his corrections in it as well. Which uh, honestly added to the experience. How clean a read is it? Is there a lot of corrections? Is he a vigorous editor of himself? Well, I get the feeling this is this is transcribed from maybe a handwritten, more heavily edited version. Um, mm. There's a few bits that are tweaked. The main sections where there was lots of lots of changes and actually was still the hardest to read is the interview with Zadok. Mm-hmm. Because uh, yeah. he he speaks in a kind of a in a dialect, doesn't he? Yes. So there's quite a lot of just crossing out and and fiddling around there. I'm glad you mentioned the interview with Zadok because maybe the first thing we should do is do a summary of the the main plot points of the Shadow Over Innsmouth, just so we know where we're situating ourselves as we talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So if you haven't read the story, you know it's it's available freely online. Yeah. This is going to be spoilers for the story, but. Considering it's nearly a century old, then I don't think uh, yeah, uh, yeah. we need to put too heavy a spoiler warning on it. So our, our story follows a young man who's on a, a tourist trip, a, a genealogical and archaeological exploration of New England. Yeah, gap year. <laughs> a, ga- a gap year. <laughs> and he's, he hears about this town that is between two of the places he's going to visit called mm. Innsmouth. And he's quite surprised to have not heard about it. And everyone else hates it so much. So all the locals he speaks to, where is he? Is he in Newburyport before he goes to Innsmouth? Yes, yeah, he is. Yeah. Everyone he speaks to hates it so much, he, he decides he has to go there. Yeah. There's, there's lots of indications, like they say that, you know, there's no train line there anymore. So you can't, they've got rid of, they discontinued the train line there. Yeah. The bus only runs once a day. It's not worth it. It's basically a detour to get to Innsmouth. It's only Innsmouth people who take it. Yeah. It's pretty clear that it's not easy to reach and not worth visiting. Whatever you do, don't stay in the hotel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's lots of stories about other people who've been there and have, like, run away. <laughs> well, something weird has happened to them and they've they've had to, like, escape from it. Yeah. So, obviously, he decides he has to go. Of course, yeah. And he says that he sort of got interest in anthropology, doesn't he? He's a, And, and ar- um, architecture as well. He's sort of keen to go exploring Yes, yeah. So he he gets the bus, Joe Sargent's bus, makes his way to Innsmouth, uh, which is an incredibly sinister place from his description of it. Although Mm. there is like a kind of a weird beauty in a lot of what he describes. He really lays it on thick with the the, the, the kind of the decrepitude of the town. That Mm. there's this impression it was once this quite impressive 
town and, and quite prosperous. But now everything is falling apart. There's people kind of standing around in little huddles, staring at you as you go past. So I'll, I'll read a little bit, if that's Yeah, right. please do, yeah. So this is him arriving in. A very thin sprinkling of repellent-looking youngish people now became visible on the sidewalks. Lone individuals in silent knots of two or three. The lower floors of the crumbling houses sometimes harboured small shops with dingy signs, and I noticed a parked truck or two as we rattled along. The sound of waterfalls became more and more distinct, and presently I saw a fairly deep river gorge ahead, spanned by a wide, iron-railed highway bridge, beyond which a large square opened out. So that's something of the sense of the of the town. It's just a bit shady, isn't it? It makes... The, the impression I think of is bus stations late at night. There's people walking around, but you don't know if you really want to go and chat to them. That's my feeling. <laughs> yes, and, and something something crucial happens, which which he comes back to again and again on that on that ride into town, which is coming past this church, mm. which was, a, was was an old Masonic hall, which is now the the esoteric order of Dagon. And the door into the basement is open, and he sees someone in there, which he, which kind of terrifies him because he, he can't quite see it. It's like a form he sees in there. Let's just see if I can find a description of what. Yes, okay. Clearly, as I realised a moment later, it was the pastor, clad in some peculiar vestment, doubtless introduced since the Order of Dagon had modified the ritual of the local churches. The thing which had probably caught my first subconscious glance and supplied the touch of bizarre horror was the tall tiara he wore, an almost exact duplicate of the one Miss Tilton had shown me in the previous evening. This, acting on my imagination, had supplied namelessly sinister qualities to the indeterminate face and robed, shambling form beneath it. So yeah, he comes back to this image of this thing he saw in the doorway. It kind of haunts him. I think even as he's laying awake at night, he's like imagining what this thing was in this doorway that he saw. Yeah, has a big impact on him. He's already seen a tiara in Newburyport. Very strange looking thing. I've actually used some of the text in some of the things we've read on previous episodes. But then, yeah, there's again this sense of alien jewellery or certainly inhuman jewellery. So when he gets to the town, he leaves his, his bag at the hotel. Yep. He goes to a corner shop where there's a guy working who isn't from Innsmouth. He just he just runs the chain store. He buys some food from him, and this guy gives him a map and a bit of a rundown on some of the folks in, in the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he goes for an explore. He, he, he's looking for this guy. Well, he's not initially, but it, it, he, he, he finds this guy, Zadok Allen, at some point, right? Yes. And decides to interview him to get some of the backstory of the town. Zadok is an old alcoholic vagrant who lives in Innsmouth and who supposedly knows lots about Innsmouth, has been around as long as anyone, and will talk if you ply them with alcohol. So the plan is to get Zadok drunk. And in fact, originally his plan is to stay for a few hours and get on the next bus out. Mm-hmm. But he adds it must have been some imp of the perverse or some sardonic pull from dark hidden sources which made me change my plans as I did. I had long before resolved to limit my observations to architecture alone, and I was even then hurrying towards the square in an effort to get quick transportation out of this festering city of death and decay, but the sight of old Zadok Allen set up new currents in my mind and made me slacken my pace uncertainly. So he spots Zadok and thinks, well, maybe I'll stay and at least talk to him for a bit, and he knows that there's a later bus that he can take, so he decides to hang around. He buys some whiskey, he gets... Uh, it gets um, sorry Zadok 
alone, leads him away and starts to chat to him while giving him whiskey. And eventually Zadok starts talking and tells him pretty much the entire backstory of the town, <laughs> which is which yeah. is helpful. Uh, and this is like a long rambling tale about a guy called um, Obed Marsh. The captain, sea captain, right? Yes, who had made some kind of deal with some South Sea Islanders, mm. which involved some kind of pact with with unknown uh, unknown beings, right? Mm. In Zadok's telling, these South Sea Islanders were in fact interbreeding with Deep Ones, although he doesn't call them Deep Ones. And the what they got from that was that they themselves would turn into deep ones, but they gain eternal life and lots of gold from below the sea. Yeah. But they have to feel, feed their young people there. So this is where it takes on the turn of the, what I suppose we'd now call Lovecraftian, right? Sort of scary creatures and horrors from the deep. And before that, we've talked about that, that Obed has maybe just found gold somewhere. But here is the sense that actually he makes a pact with them and agrees to start breeding with deep ones himself and the the town becomes a lot more prosperous after this because there's lots mm. of fish they can catch there's gold that comes up which they're able to do they set they sell on the gold is that what they do they melt the gold down in the factory is, is that what the refinery is because I, I, I yeah, yeah yeah i think so yeah and there is one particular night where the deep ones from beneath devil reef where there's a nest of them kind of rise up and purge the town of everyone who isn't on uh obed's side Mm-hmm. So after this is all, that, that, that's kind of the, the crux of what Zadok, he, he kind of freaks out and runs off eventually, doesn't he? Yes, yeah. And he, they're sitting by the shore on some rocks. Obed is looking out to sea and our narrator is looking back at town and every so often describes how, Obed, uh, not Obed, sorry, Zadok's face gets more and more shocked. And I certainly had an image in my head that there are deep ones in the water watching as he's telling the stories. And of course, maybe there aren't, but that's certainly what Zadok's afraid of, that he can be heard kind of telling tales on how Innsmouth works. And there's yeah. that f- fear that, that, that there is some kind of conspiracy of silence around what happened. What that starts to suggest as well is that the boarded up houses aren't actually deserted. It's that they're boarded up because they're now inhabited by things that aren't human. And they need to be kept boarded up so that they're not seen to the outside world. So what I really like about Shadow Over Innsmouth at that moment is, for me, there was already hints that there were things hiding in the dark. But there's that real reframing for the reader where you think, hang on a second, every boarded up place maybe actually has is infested with deep ones. And you're not in a deserted town. You're in an overrun town, just not in the way that you thought it was. Yeah, I find that really creepy and exciting. Well, let's jump back to the story, because at this point, yeah. he makes his way back to the town square to get the bus back. Yeah. Just in time for the bus to arrive, he jumps on the bus and is then informed that the bus has broken down. So he has mm. to stay in town overnight. Yeah. So he's forced to stay in the Gilman Gilman House Hotel. Is that what it's yeah. called? Interesting choice of name. <laughs> yeah, so he he stays there. He, he bolts all his doors and uh, is interrupted in the night by someone kind of climbing the stairs and trying his door. Mm. Uh, we'll, we'll move quite briefly. Basically, he, he runs away at this point. Um, yeah. there's, there's a kind of lengthy sequence where he's sneaking around the streets, which feels very Arkham Horror the card game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He manages to make his way. He, he realises they've blocked all the roads out of the town but that they probably haven't blocked the overgrown railway path. Mm. 
so he decides to take that, and uh, when he sees this column of fish people, which was the introduction to this episode, uh, he, he faints away. But then he wakes up the next day, manages to get to the nearby town, and then from there on, he uh, escapes back to civilization, re- reports what's happened, mm-hmm. uh, at which point the, the government intervenes and uh, kind of raids the houses and blows up the reef with submarines. It's probably worth reading again. This is how The Shadow of Innsmouth begins, the very first sentence. During the winter of 1927-28, to officials of the federal government made a strange and secret investigation of certain conditions in the ancient Massachusetts seaport of Innsmouth. The public first learned of it in February, when a vast series of raids and arrests occurred, followed by the deliberate burning and dynamiting, under suitable precautions, of an enormous number of crumbling, worm-eaten and supposedly empty houses along the abandoned waterfront. And just a few paragraphs later, our narrator says, It was I who fled frantically out of Innsmouth in the early morning hours of July 16th, 1927, and whose frightened appeals for government inquiry and action brought on the whole reported episode. So he's kind of lays his cards out at the start, which yeah. is, I think, credit to the story that you almost forget. We know what's going to happen. Innsmouth is going to get dynamited. Yeah. But there's still that sense of how does he get out and, and how will he manage it? Yes. And so, so once he's escaped, that's not the end of the story quite. Mm. He, he, he follows up this thread that Zadok has, has laid out about Obed's family. And there's kind of quite a, a convoluted section where he... he it slowly dawns on him that he is related to the Marsh family, mm. distantly so, and that some of his relatives, one of his relatives actually went to Innsmouth and killed himself soon afterwards. And a few of them had this this so-called Innsmouth look, which is this mm. kind of wide-eyed, fishy look, and he believes he is himself turning into a deep one based on this kind of ancestral uh, corruption. Mm-hmm. And that's where so we you end. you think all along the story is that he's the one who managed to disrupt this nest of deep ones. But in fact, the kicker is that he himself is deep oneifying. As, as, as a brief note, there's an interesting... One of the things I, I noticed is, is the way Innsmouth is referred to at the beginning of the story. It's like kind of fear-shadowed fear Innsmouth. And at the end, right at the end, I think he calls it marvel-shadowed marvel Innsmouth. Mm. <laughs> it's uh, quite an interesting change. Yeah, yeah. So that's the story. So really it can be broken down. I was thinking about this this morning. It can be broken down into pre-Innsmouth, what happens before he gets there, Innsmouth, and then flee Innsmouth. Yes. Rather than post And like the epilogue. Yeah. I think I, this was one of the, the early stories I read by Lovecraft. Mm. And I think I've always, I've always found it one of his best stories. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, it's interesting to break down why that might be. I think there's some really effective sequences in here. I've always found the sequence where he escapes from Innsmouth uh, really compelling. It's quite a good mm-hmm. action sequence. Yeah. And it's quite tense. There's a bit where he's in the hotel. Because like, he actually unscrews a, a bolt from a cupboard or, or, a, <laughs> or a set of drawers or something and then screws it onto the door in order yeah. to create a barricade. Actually, I was going to raise this later on. He, he it says he's got a, like a, a screwdriver on a keyring, so he's got like an old keyring. Yeah, but but in contrast to the game, he's using the keyring to secure a door, not to unlock it to find a clue. Yeah, which I thought yeah. was was quite cool. And we've actually read some of this story when we were talking about evasion as well on the on the cast before, because the description of him fleeing Innsmouth is probably one of the best 
primary source bits of text about what a Vade is like in Arkham. We've got cards where there are people, you know, hiding around the side of a building or pulling a collar up. But that's really what goes on in this story, that it's a, what is a Vade like when you evade an enemy and then they aren't engaged with you anymore? Yeah. And this is one of the places that really illustrates that. He's going from doorway to doorway. He's trying to stay one step ahead of them. There's moments where he is on a street and he looks ahead and he can see shadows and he changes direction. So there's a lot of details that actually remind me of the game or that really seem like they inform how the game plays. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that struck me as I was reading it is that often in Lovecraftian stories, you're removed from the interesting things that have happened. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and this, this I guess, is a technique where he allows your imagination to fill in what's happened to these people. But but actually, he still ma- he manages to do that. He still makes quite a scary story, despite the fact he goes into quite a lot of detail about what happens to the narrator. In another mm. in, in Lovecraft story, you know, you'll meet someone who said, "Oh yeah, there was a guy who was coming on a research trip, and he went to Winsmouth, and we found him the next day covered in mud, walking into the town, and then a few yeah. few years later, he disappeared altogether after breaking his his cousin out of the the asylum." That would be the way his story was reported. But here we dive into that story and we find yes. out what happened to make him lose his mind. Yeah. And I think, you know, for there's, there's the way that you could tell the story most directly is not foreshadow it at all and just say, I'm a young man, I'm visiting Innsmouth and describe it. But Lovecraft likes to use foreshadowing and so says, you know, that the Federal Bureau have raided the place and <laughs> taken it apart. So you already get this sense of, oh, okay, so in a way, we know you're going to be okay because you asked for this to happen. So he undercuts himself in that way. And I actually am thinking about, we were looking at Dagon for this episode as well. We won't go into as much detail about Dagon. But Dagon does a similar thing where it starts by saying, I'm writing this under an appreciable mental strain since by tonight I shall be no more. And in terms of story writing, you've got to be really confident that you can stick the landing if you're saying, oh yeah, and by the way, this is ends with me dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So in both, they do it in opposite ways. But Shadow of Innsmouth says, oh, yeah, by the way, at the end of this story, Innsmouth gets destroyed, just so you know, which <laughs> yeah. which really pulls the rug un- out from underneath you about any feeling of suspense you want or things like that. And Lovecraft, he seems almost not, unable to help himself and not just to report things directly. And obviously, as he developed as a writer, he then started doing things like, well, it didn't even happen to me. It happened in this journal that I'm going to read you now. <laughs> and he sort of added even more layers of remove. Yeah. But funnily enough, I think it works well in Innsmouth because there is enough of a twist and it's a long enough story that you forget what the outcome is. You're, I, like, I feel like I'm really in it with the narrator trying to explore this place and being gently spooked by it. Even though he does describe the ending right at the start, he, he does have an extra twist he's put there. Yeah. And, and the, that twist is maybe one of the most horrifying things in the story. Mm. Mm. The other thing that did strike me, just on a slightly different different tangent, is that the, the, the kind of the, the morbidly, the stuff he's drawn to morbidly is the stuff we kind of want him to do as the reader. Mm. So so he's like, well, I've heard this place is terrible. Like a normal person would be like, well, yeah, don't go there. That sounds awful. Yeah. Why are you going to go there? But he's like, well, it's so bad. There must be something interesting. And it's, it's almost like that. It's it's the, the don't go in there shouting when you're watching a horror film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, we know there wouldn't be a story if he didn't do it. But and yet we still don't want him to. And there's a bit like later on where he's lying in, in the in the railway escaping from the town and all of the monsters are coming past and he's got his eyes shut his eyes pressed tightly shut 
And you know, there's always this thing in Lovecraft where he doesn't he doesn't actually describe what's horrible. So you know, it's you you got to make it up yourself. But actually, here he does open his eyes, and you're there like, well, if I was in his place, I wouldn't open my eyes. But I, as a reader, really want to because I want to see what's there. Yeah, and he does describe yeah. this kind of column of horrific creatures, which I think he manages to stick the landing in describing something horrible without just saying it's indescribable. Yeah, I mean, and <laughs> if I'm being cruel as well, the most horrible thing he can think of is a fish-frog hybrid. Yeah. <laughs> ah, Lovecraft, it's so disgusting. How it's could a, you think of that? Fish and a frog <laughs> <You know>? together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like yeah, if we're, if he's, we're he's always sort, him, sort of. Stri- I don't know whether it's because I just know all the stories so well, <laughs> but there's another one. Is I can't remember which one it is. Ah, oh, the name has just escaped me now. But like a someone who's dead comes to the door, and you're just like, oh well, it's a zombie then. And it's obviously he he meant for it to be a lot more scary than it ends up being. Yeah, uh, and all the way yeah. through, he's he's teasing that they've got oh they've got fish. Their heads are shaped a bit like fish. They've got yeah. things that look like gills around their necks. They've got big eyes that don't blink. And you're like, oh, well, they sound like fish people then. And yeah. you get to the end and it says, and then they were fish people. And you're like, well, yeah, that was kind of obvious. That they exactly. were going to be fish people. If we're being mean, you're like, maybe you should have just said that they were indescribable. Because <laughs> when you've described them, I'm not that bothered. Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess that's also the weird thing. You know, we make the jokes about the little deep one that could, Tony's quarry. Uh, yeah, It's yeah. like there's almost something... Maybe it's a way of avoiding being scared by it, but there's almost something sweet about these little deep ones. You know, they're, no pun intended, fish out of water and trying to survive in the big bad world. But yeah, I think, but I think by and large, he does quite a good job of, uh, Lovecraft does, of adding this layer of menace by making it clear that there are things that aren't human and maybe emphasising as well that humans are becoming inhuman in some way as, as a way of, scaring us scaring the narrator you know and i think what is really interesting and one of the the key things i want to talk about is when i first read the story i've always really enjoyed this story and but as i've got older and i've become more socially aware you Mm. spot other things and other themes especially in stories like lovecraft and i think this is the one where the horror ties in with his racism that manifests in a lot of ways it's very easy to, to point it say you know there's there's examples of overt racism in in Lovecraft's work the way he refers to to specific people specific races the name yeah. of the cat <laughs> yeah. uh, in yeah. one of the stories is just a race, racial slur and and there's none of that really in this story none of that kind of more overt stuff there is a man who's very racist that he meets mm. yeah and he sort of is able to be racist by saying oh well that's just something this guy said that he meets yeah and in fact the guy claims to be reporting what other people have said as well. That's right, yes. So yes. it's this like nice couched racism. I'm not saying it, but other people said some pretty racist stuff, and I'm just reporting it because I was told it, Yeah. which it's weird. It gives it a veneer of almost respectability where you're like, well, it's just reported dialogue. Yeah. And this, I guess you were leading to saying that it's it's not overt racism, it's covert racism, that it's still there as the view that's reported. Yes, and also it, it really feeds into the actual horror of the twist at the end. Because, you know, there's, I think especially relevant now when we've got Lovecraft Country on the TV yeah. and, and the, the book of that, which I'd highly recommend people read as well. It's a really good book. The origin of kind of racist law in America would define your race. It is the kind of the one drop of blood rule, wasn't there? Mm, yeah. Uh, and this idea that that 
some tainted blood somewhere in your ancestry is enough to condemn you now to a fate that you can't escape from. Mm-hmm. I can understand why that's that's a real source of horror that can be tied to race, and I can understand it uh, being linked to his racism as a person, like this mm. fear of your ancestry or being related to people or having some aspect of a different race to you. This is a really really key theme in Sh- in Shadow of Rinsmouth, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and I think that's what it makes our job doing a law episode that little bit trickier because. Won't it's... someone think of us, the real victims of racism? Yeah. <laughs> Two white guys doing a podcast. <laughs> exactly. And I was going to go on to say, because in case it's not clear, we condemn Lovecraft's racism. Yeah. And we don't agree with the views that he has characters express, even through reported dialogue from someone else. Yeah. And the fact, in a way, that it's covert is even more contemptible because then it just slips through and doesn't get questioned and raises raises those points like, well, it's not Lovecraft saying it, it's just one of his characters. Yeah. And it's still a written document that we're reading. It's absolutely built into the structure of the story, isn't it? That, mm. that this man made a deal and there was some crossbreeding going on and the crossbreeding ended up with ancestors that were monstrous. That's it's like mm. a it's like a structural racism. <laughs> yeah. In, yeah. In the way he's he's made the story. What does it say about me as uh bleeding heart liberal that I'm actually relieved that the crossbreeding is with literal aliens <laughs> rather than it being more explicitly racist yeah. like that that in itself is probably problematic well but yeah but also th- this is a theme he covers in some of his other books mm. these are the stories where the the, the crossbreeding is with I'll, I'll I'll I'm doing air quotes here savages mm. you know people yeah. like that Lovecraft wouldn't have considered civilized people yeah and that's the horrific denouement. Is that oh no, I might have been related to someone who wasn't right white. God, yeah. isn't that horrendous? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think this this that that level of racism in his books is more apparent to me as I've got older and, and read them. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the stuff that maybe slips under the radar a bit more when it's easy mm. to say he's he's using uh, racist slurs. You know, that's the stuff yeah. that's easy to spot, easy to condemn. Yeah. The yeah. themes. I think, like you say, this the structural racism of it is where it, it. Obed Marsh definitely slept with some people he shouldn't have slept with. It's like that's not a very big remove, actually, from saying you shouldn't sleep with people who aren't the same color as you, which is <laughs> which is racist. You're making a judgment based on the on the color of their skin. So that's kind of horrific. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's it's a it's an that aspect of the story is interesting, and I think it's it's interesting to read it going in knowing that that's going to be the case. Um, mm. Obviously aware that being able to not be too bothered by it is a, is a luxury we've got. Yeah, um, it's white privilege. As, as, yeah, it's white, white British liberals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I, the, the final thing I think yeah. I'd say on this, because it does then raise a question of why are we talking about it and where do we go from here, is we're very lucky that FFG have also explicitly condemned the racism in Lovecraft and also believe that in Arkham Files, they can lean on a setting like Innsmouth without being racist. The, the various companies have done a lot of work over the years, just changing changing his stories, changing some of the themes in the stories. Obviously, the, the, the Arkham Files stuff from FFG is a lot more pulpy. There was mm. even a, I believe, um, Katrina Ostrander, is it? Yeah. And MJ did a did a Twitch stream a little while ago, which was about creating a narrative 
uh, in in this IP. And and you can take the IP without actually, the racism is actually not important. And maybe that's the best, as in the racism is so important that it's not something you need to keep in the story. It's not important for the integrity of playing in Innsmouth. I'm tying myself in knots here slightly. And I think actually mentioning games is, a, is an interesting seg into the next section where he's very precise in how he describes the town of Innsmouth. Mm, yeah. You know what I was thinking as I was reading it? I really want to sit down with a map. Yeah, I, I, I feel like that section is like a game designer's dream. Yeah. Because he names all of the streets. He says which streets interact with which other streets. Because he's done the bus journey through and then he goes strolling around town, he really <laughs> maps out the town for you. I was thinking, wow, like as a resource for designing location cards and mapping them out, it's a really fantastic resource. It's, it's not the most exciting in terms of fiction, but I actually think it's really useful if you're then going to visit that place in the game. I was really hoping that you'd draw a map because, yeah, there must be someone who sat down. There's, there's loads and loads of maps. There's, a, there's some very famous uh, scenarios. I think there's a key scenario for the Call of Cthulhu uh, role-playing game, which is set in Innsmouth. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what it's called, and people listening are probably shouting it out at the at the radio right now. It's, it's one of the key scenarios for that, that RPG um, has got mm-hmm. Set in Innsmouth. And I th- that's got a really good map with it yeah. as well. And I've seen that map in the past. We'll have a look for that. Yeah. And we've seen already with, I think it's, is it In Too Deep? I think it might be In Too Deep, that scenario that has a grid of locations and you're getting through water barricades to move through it. Yes. The first Mythos pack. And of course, a grid doesn't seem that exciting, but we know from the Shadow of Innsmouth that there are streets that make a grid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, descri- he describes those those streets. And this idea of, of running around the town and having blockades in places and maybe blockades that can be manipulated by the players, that mm-hmm. feels so like that escape sequence. Yes. Because he's in yeah. the he's in the rooms and he, even the rooms are laid out like a grid, right? Because they've all got the they've got like the three doors. Yeah. You know, the doors that link to the other rooms and then the door to the hall. And he kind of charges through these connecting doors and locks them as he does and then when he gets into the last room there's a fourth way out which is through the window mm, mm, um, yeah so yeah. that really really feels like you know that that's ripe for a conversion or the feeling of that section is like ripe for a conversion into the card game yes in mansions of madness second edition there's an intimate scenario at least one intimate scenario that you start in a in a bedroom inside and one of the options is you can climb out a window out of the toilet yeah and and out the back or you can go out the front and there are people around who they start as normal townsfolk but depending on the scenario setup they can actually turn into cultists so members of the esoteric order and yeah it's definitely a really rich setting for turning it for gamifying it i've mentioned evasion i think that features really nicely we've got the bus and the train line and we know vehicles are coming into innsmouth as well yeah i wonder if that was also just part of the inspiration that innsmouth is a good setting itself but also it's remote and has water and roads out of it and so maybe maybe mj and jeremy were like well now could be the time to add vehicles and we can explore a little bit further afield do we know when the the campaign is set? Not the scenario of the campaign. At the time of recording, no. But yeah, good question. It would be interesting to know because it, it, if it fits in before our protagonist visits, at what point 
at what point before then, or is it after? Is it after mm. there's been a purge of the town by the authorities? Yeah, and we know about a missing federal agent as part of the storyline for for the Innsmouth conspiracy. Is that a forerunner of the federal? You know, the feds coming in and purging the town. Is that after the fact? Someone's come to investigate what happened. That that could be really interesting as well. Situating this before or after. On previous episodes, we've lingered on this word conspiracy, and the shadow over Innsmouth itself as a story. It's not that interested in the idea of conspiracy beyond the fact that... I mean, I don't think of what Obed Marsh did as a conspiracy. He just was carrying on with his nefarious plans. Yeah, I I was going to say I would tend to disagree because I I think we've got like almost a number of conspiracies overlapped here Mm. because we've got a conspiracy by Obed. He's obviously operating in secret... Or some mm. element of what he's doing is in secret at the start, at the start, not the start of the story. Earlier on in Obed's tale, once he's come back from the these these South Sea Islanders with this yeah. idea to make a deal with some what's the word for subterranean for underwater submarine submarine <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, with, with with this other civilization this ancient civilization. So he, he's all he's there's a there's a conspiracy there. Well, I suppose there is the conspiracy to take over the town as exactly, well. Exactly, like, yeah. And the then, 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 you know, the, then this purge happens. There's a conspiracy of our our narrator to get the information and then sneak out of the town. Mm. He, he wants to come in, get the information, because he kind of takes Zadok to a secret place and gives him loads of alcohol and stuff. And then there's also the conspiracy of the people in the town who are sneaking around at night. And, uh, well, we don't know whether they, they're trying to assault the narrator because they know something they shouldn't, or whether they know that he's related to the Marshes and they kind of mm. want to recruit him. I don't think that's really made clear, is it? That's, I think, a really good point and a neat one that Lovecraft n- nicely dodges. If they had captured him, it might have been the, like, hey, cousin, you're back. Yeah. But obviously the narrator can't know that at the time because he hasn't already explored his own history. So... Yeah, it's kind of important. Um, no, I, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I suppose there actually is a bigger conspiracy, which is the conspiracy of silence around what's gone on, the boarding up of houses, making people take different oaths within the esoteric order, insisting that people don't leave as well. That That is a conspiracy. So maybe I just needed to put my conspiracy hat on and then I could find the conspiracies <laughs> in it. Yeah, I, I genuinely wonder if what we'll see in... The Innsmouth conspiracy, and of course, this episode will come out when we've had a chance to play Innsmouth. So this this could be completely disproved, but some sense of trying to find information in Innsmouth and remove it, and Innsmouth trying to stop people from doing that. Deep One's plan to rise up in an army and defeat humanity, but it always seems like they're waiting for another another time that it's not right now. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe it will be now in the game. And we have to stop it. So yeah, this is just a taster of the shadow over Innsmouth and the decrepitude that we're venturing into now with a new cycle. There's obviously other things you can read by Lovecraft, by other writers as well, that will get you into that mood. There's been computer games as well that have already featured on it. There was a couple of kind of Cthulhu-like games last year, was it? Yeah, I can't remember the one last year was called, but the, the earlier... Call of Cthulhu game, and I can't remember the name of that either, that that had a sequence where you actually escape from the Gilman House Hotel. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Is that Dark Sides of Dark? Dark, sh- dark Corners of the Earth, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Not played it, but yeah. So, you know, these things are around. Keep an eye out for them. Watch out for Innsmouth conspiracies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed the episode. You can contact us. We're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. Drawn to the flame on Facebook, Twitter, Patreon, designed by humans if you want a Drawn to the Flame t shirt or any other loot. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I am United everywhere. That's U N I T L E D. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Discord. I'm on Instagram as the.unitled and around loads of other places. How about you, Frank? I'm Zooey Glass or Zozo around the place. Come say hi, of course, to either of us. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Recording. Oh, I don't know why I just clapped there. <laughs> you didn't even count me in. I'm excited. <laughs> Three, two, one.